0: the hard-working people, let's drink to the lonely of birth, raise your glass to the good and the evil, let's drink to the salt of the earth, lay a prayer
1: for the common good put- Hello and welcome, this is Social Studies Voices Across America, I'm Bill Wood,
2: I'm Peter Goldsmith,
1: and this week we have something a little different, we have a guest, Arlene Goldbard is a writer, social activist, and consultant whose focus is the intersection of culture, politics, and spirituality. I'm being uh, ganged up on here a little bit, both Peter and Arlene are from New York City. I'm not, but she is a chief policy wonk of the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture, president of the Shalom Center, Strategic Thinking in the Service of Justice and Love. She also has a book out, two books, but the one we're going to concentrate on today is The Culture of Possibility, Art, artists and the future arlene welcome
0: thank you so much bill i'm so happy to be
2: here arlene it's wonderful to have you here uh, i've read your books they're fabulous you're an incredibly interesting and uh, exciting author especially the culture of possibility which i really love uh, but what i like even more is that you're a wonk uh, anybody who's a wonk is okay with me and you're not only a wonk you're a chief wonk so that's pretty great right there Anyway, let me start out by asking you the question, Arlene. We talk all the time about culture, this culture, that culture. Tell me what culture is and why it's important to all of us. Well,
0: Peter, I often think of culture as a kind of crucible or a matrix because it's the aggregate of all the ways we make meaning of our world. So, you know, the languages, the signs, the symbols, the customs, the observances, the holidays, the things we eat, the way we relate to each other, that's is all part of culture in the larger anthropological sense. And art, which is a lot of what I focus on, is the purest expression of those values, that beauty, that meaning that lifts human life from merely existing to, to something worth living
2: one of the areas that I love to read about historically is fifth century BC Greece. So many things happened there. Uh, art wasn't even considered art. Every object was an object art. You know, it was, so so the Greeks really were past that and they integrated art and into their lives every day. It was part of their lives. We, we now value these, uh, wonderful vases, which were simply water jugs for the Greeks. That's all they thought about. But I, I think what's interesting here and you, and you talk about it is the, um, the symbiosis between art and the greater culture. And I think for me, I've always felt that an artist needs to be as ever prevalent as a good delicatessen. When you're hungry, you can go in and get a sandwich and you should be able to go to an art and artists should be able to lead by reflecting upon what's gone on in the culture. Would you agree to that or not?
0: I agree with it, framed the way that you did, Peter, with with some shoulds in it. Because, of course, as much as I would like to think that all artists are equally virtuous and dedicated to humane values, Ronald Reagan was an artist. Um,
2: <laughs> you know, John, Wayne, of- John Wayne Gacy was an artist. We-
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So it isn't that artists are intrinsically um, uh, uh, more apt to embrace that social responsibility that you just named, or more apt to be on what I would consider the side of love and justice in social issues. Um, But the fact is, there are many, many artists abroad in this country, around the world, historically, who have seen their mission in exactly the way that you said. You know, many of us who are artists, whether we're visual artists or writers or musicians, dancers, theater people, we come up in the world with this doubleness. You know, often we're the weird kids, we're kind of maybe chosen last on the playground. There's something that feels um, not quite in it and of it, uh, uh, or in it but not of it, as Stevie Wonder said, something like that that infuses the lives of many artists. And then that doubleness, that alienation holds us in good stead in later years. I like to think artists are people who've made something beautiful out of their alienation.
2: Marshall McLuhan uh, described the proletariat as being in the society, but not of the society. In in, in this country, all the minorities that we had, black people, brown people, yellow people, of course, are the proletariat, you know? And those are the people who, as artists, I feel, and it can be white people as well, who struggle to create something from emotional stability, which they never have had, and to pass on to the rest of us who do have it, the majority culture. So I think that's really where art and, and for me, politics, I'm not talking about Republican, Democrat, I'm talking about the geopolitic here, uh, collide or, or at least come together. I think that's what's important to realize because artists up until maybe, I don't know, maybe 100 or 150 years ago were the historians. All the relics that we found of other societies were writing we either visual or, or poetry or myth, and I want to get into that with you in a minute. But I think that's really what makes us the people that we are, is picking up on what was left behind us, whereas a conservative thinks what was left behind creates what we have today, whereas a progressive may think what we have today from picking up from behind leads us to a better place for tomorrow. I would hope that would be the case.
1: Let me let me jump in here a minute. Arlene Goldbard, do you think that we've devalued art in the culture right now, especially in schools in education, so that uh, art is uh, something that we could set aside in exchange for time to teach kids how to pass a math test?
0: Absolutely, Bill. I mean, one of the things I talk about in my book, The Culture of Possibility, is I posit two coexisting realms and we can decide if we want to put our weight on one side or the other. One I call data stand because it values only what can be weighed, measured, counted, and that leaves art out. So in a lot of places, our school curriculum now has been written in data stand by people who think that the job of education is to teach Uh, students to compliantly sit in front of a computer and enter uh, answer multiple choice questions or um, to behave in a way that suppresses their creative impulses big big mistake the other realm I call the republic of stories because it's full of nuance and color and texture and it says everybody has a story and all of our stories are worth listening to that's not the watchword of America in uh, the 21st century
1: so let's Let me ask this, the the follow-up question this way. Are those paths parallel, divergent, or uh, coming together at some point in the near future?
0: Well, in some way, they both... I mean, they're true. They're inevitable. They need to exist. Like I need to add stuff up and you need to stop when the light says red. And, you know, there are all these ways in which the concrete rules of data stand have to be part of our existence. Mm. But the Republic of Stories has been radically devalued by the rise of of, um, neoliberalism Mm. and the corporate economy in that Social arrangements keep being crafted for the convenience of people who profit from them and not for the people who actually interact with them. So most of us ordinary citizens, non-citizens, residents of our communities, we have these disheartening, degrading experiences when we interface with the DMV, the unemployment office, the medical care, all the uh, school, you know, all the ordinary things of life were treated like a widget. We're expected to conform to things that don't come naturally to humans. And the compliance and demoralization that comes from having that experience over and over again makes us easy marks and easy to, to shift and, and manipulate. So there's a way in which the both realms coexist, and I guess you could say they converge in that we're never going to not need to weigh, measure, and count things. That's always going to be part of, of human life and human culture. But we need to feed the other side of the equation a lot and really fast.
2: Arlene, do you ever believe that we'll be without a minority culture? Because I think that's really what we're talking about here. And and I think in, in the United States of America, on May Day, by the way, uh, today, we're more divergent than we've ever been we've more we're, we're further apart than we've ever been, and we need something to bring us back to the center. We need to have some kind of compromise i guess on both sides perhaps
0: I'm not sure I, I buy compromise we need something to create yeah. unity absolutely peter I'm not sure it's a compromise I think you know, I keep hearing people say something that really resonates with me, that race is not real, but racism is. In no. other words, we've gotten to a thing in this society in which we've accepted this very clumsy, gross labeling system that it, it allows us to sum people up by one or two words. Um, she's a black woman. He's an Asian man. and think we know something about them and people are treated as members of gross categories and Progressive people, people who share the values that we three have been talking about, often unwittingly comply with that agenda by using their energy to slot people into these categories and treat them as if they were real. Um, So all the conversation that's going on these days about white privilege, white supremacy and its impact on the society, there's really no compromise with white supremacy. You know, the the direction that it has to go in is to understand that we don't just fit in five categories. There's thousands of kinds of diversity and we need to hear each other's stories and not make it convenient to oppress us.
1: When you talk about no compromise with white supremacy, is that an issue of white supremacy, uh, white privilege, or is that just a... Uh, an a, a issue of the majority culture, the people in power. There's no compromise with power.
0: Well, probably both, Bill, you know, in the sense that the institutional policies that have made this a society that's marked by white supremacy and under the current federal administration have given more invitation and permission for those views to be expressed and manifested in public space Um, That's a long legacy. You know, you don't get that in a minute. Um, It's not about who's in power. If, if somebody that we liked were elected president, for example, white supremacy would still be an issue in in America. Um, And we happen to be in a moment in which um, a a pro-corporate, essentially white supremacist agenda marks the people who are in the White House, so that just doubles down on on problems that we've been grappling with for a long time. You know, I feel like there's always three ingredients to making this kind of systemic social change. One is awareness, and a lot is happening now to make people aware of embedded attitudes that may be restricting their view of what's possible, the equitable, loving society, just society that's possible. Um, And then after awareness is acknowledgement, like doing something in public that says, look, this is happening. Let's all pay attention to it. Let's own it. Let's own our history. Let's own our present. And that often is the work of artists. Those are often the people who are pointing, setting up those pointers. And then the third step is to do something in marked contradiction to the old message to the old embedded attitudes. So you have to take action that counters, for example, white supremacy. And when we repeat these things over and over again, eventually things get better. Um, It's tough, you know, to, I mean, look at this uh, White House Correspondents Dinner, the comedian uh, Michelle Wolf uh, made some jokes about Sarah Sanders Huckabee, and uh, she's been just vilified by people who I don't think actually listened to what she said, um, for being vulgar, which is hilarious because of course we have the Vulgarian in chief in in, in mm-hmm. the White House but also for commenting on
1: uh, a woman that prepared. you can't let that the vulgarian <laughs> in chief didn't, Bill, 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 you and i didn't dumb. say it.
2: it was arlene and she's our guest not that we don't agree but we didn't say
1: it <laughs> i'm sorry i well, cut you off perfect Arlene. perfect of that course that perfect. absolutely
2: no you're right You're absolutely right. And, you know, as an artist, you know, I think oftentimes I I, I am a New Yorker, as Bill said, and I have lived uh, basically in Appalachia for the last seven and a half years. I live in Western North Carolina. And and one of the important cultural things here is, you know, when I left, uh, people I knew in Los Angeles and New York where I used to work, Uh, always said to me, are you now going to knock out your two front teeth and play a banjo? Is that what you're going to do? The answer is, I still have my two front teeth, but yes, I do play a banjo. Point being is, we have these cultural stereotypes that you're talking about, and I think one of the ways that we get through them is myth and storytelling. I think storytelling is a very generous and simple way to deliver a message that's easily understandable and delivered to younger people. I have two grandchildren, and the, when as soon as we get there, oh, tell me a story or read me a story, and it, it's always that way. So I think the education through the simplistic form of storytelling is is one of the many many answers that we as artists can adopt to overthrow this whatever we're in. I want to say yeah. administration, but yeah, I, I think that's important too. We don't. I don't think we talk enough about it. I don't think we understand um, storytelling as such an important feature, as I really now have come to believe that it is.
0: Mm-hmm. It's And it's funny, Bill, because of course, uh, excuse me, Peter, it's funny because story is like the foundation of all of our spiritual traditions, all tribal cultures. I mean, basically the Bible is a story. You know, there's just a lot of different ways that people convey the, the um, condensed wisdom of the ages. And it's almost always through telling a story, not a treatise. Of right. some kind, for example. And that's because a story engages empathy. You imaginatively cast yourself into the, the situation of the characters that you're hearing about. You feel some of the feelings that they're experiencing. You ask yourself what you would have done in that same situation. And that opens a door to understanding. Um, you know, in the last 20, 30 years, there's been all these books written from a uh, cognitive science perspective. Um, Daniel Kahneman did a great one, Thinking Fast and Slow, but there's just a ton of them. And they tell people this is how the human mind works. We're learning this from the scientific experimentation. And the conclusion that they've come to, which uh, we see reflected in our political discourse, is that people understand things and make important decisions more on the basis of things like emotion, metaphor, parable, um, analogy, than on a white paper of the facts and figures. So that's why in the political debate, the people who you know put out the facts and figures all the time and say, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you logical? Why don't you see this? Don't get that that's not the process that's happening. And the irony is, The process that is happening where our feelings are being touched, our sense of beauty and meaning is being engaged, um, our sense of empathy is being activated by stories. And by stories, I'm not just meaning storytelling, I'm meaning all the different ways to do that. It's not only affirmed by all these scientists, it's affirmed by every cultural tradition since the beginning of time. And yet we don't seem to still get it.
2: I think we confuse our emotions sometimes with uh, fact. What I mean by that is there's a great debate in this country. We don't have to go into it, but the debate is uh, climate change and the planet heating up. Uh, There are people who are climate change deniers. We know that. My question about that is, okay, that's fine. If that's your belief, that's your belief. I respect it. I don't agree with it, of course, but I can respect it. But my question is, why don't you believe it? What is there in your makeup that doesn't allow you to believe something which has been told to us as factualized by, I don't know what the number is, 90-whatever percent of climatologists around the world all agree on this, but you're sure it's not that. So it's not so much uh, uh, that you disagree with it, it's why do you disagree with it? And that's what's interesting. You know, we have a concept in the last two years of, quote-unquote, fake news. I mean, you know, Why? Why, cannot, why Why are we so alienated that we can't come back and go, okay, maybe this is right. Maybe I can give up this foolish feeling that I have with because I have no knowledge to back it up, because of course, talking climate change, and maybe I can come out of it and realize perhaps there are things that can be valid by me looking at this. That's the question that I ask really of this society. It's not you know, so much as who elected the president or who didn't, but why. That's the real key for me. What is it that that drives us to a point of, I, I'm, a, I'm a rugged, quote unquote, I'm a rugged individualist, uh, the concept of the 19th and early 20th century, and I don't have to take your malarkey. I can do what I want to do, whether I have facts to back it up or not, but I can claim I do. So what's underlying that is what I'm interested in.
0: Well, there's uh, it, it is a really, really interesting question, I think, um, and several things come to mind for me about that. One is that one of the things that we've learned from all these cognitive science studies is that the chief cognitive bias that the human mind is susceptible to is confirmation bias. Confirmation Mm -hmm. bias is when we look out, gaze out at reality, whatever we're reading, seeing, experiencing, but what we're looking for is evidence that confirms what we already think or believe. And because the world is so evidence-rich, you can confirm any hypothesis, right? Mm-hmm. You can, you can <laughs> There's yeah. evidence for, you know, there's a little green man standing behind me in my office here. I can probably come up with evidence for that. Um, so the only way to really seek truth is to interrogate your own assumptions and seek to refute the things you believe. And we don't teach people to do that. We teach kids in school to form a hypothesis, to make sure they're right, to not make a mistake. But the truth is we only learn by making mistakes. And then the second thing I would just mention there, which I think isn't thought about enough, and this is a concept from the French writer, Lucien Goldmont, potential consciousness. He says, you can't believe something. You can't learn something. You can't come to understand something. If you have a prior belief, that impedes that. So, you know, if I think that trips to the moon were all staged in a studio (laughs) in Hollywood somewhere, no matter how much evidence you give me about that a rocket actually went there, um, I'm not going to believe it. And that goes back to interrogating your own assumptions, to looking at the things that are embedded in your own values and convictions
2: that keep you from learning is there a methodology for that because that's what would be really important to create to interrogate your own beliefs a methodology where i could say okay i don't believe this but perhaps let me go back and look and follow steps or whatever because as an artist i do that all the time i mean what am i putting out here and why am i putting this out and who am i putting it out for you know bill and i both as you know have have television backgrounds and uh The nice thing about that is you do a television program and the next day you know exactly who watched it, who they were as far as age, gender, demographic, which is a made up word. But anyway, but how do you do that generally? How can you agree to disagree with yourself after you've been accepting of those ideals?
0: I think I think it's pretty simple. You just have to have the will because (laughs) the questions are simple. Question number one. How do I know this is true? Question number two, how would things be different if it
2: wasn't true? I think that's the answer. I think the second question is really the most important one. How would things be different? And could I be accepting of them? Uh, That's what I'm really looking for when I say the underlying, you know. Could I accept the difference? Could I accept the change? And I don't think... We are bred to accept the change. It's easier for us, I used the word lazy before, it's easier for us to be lazy and just go along with the flow of things. It just is. I mean, we need to break that
1: pattern. We're talking with Arlene Goldbard, a writer. We called her a chief policy wonk of the U.S. Department of Arts and Culture, president of the Shalom Center. And we're talking about one of her books, The Culture of Possibility, Art artists and the future what if we look at this as a I I remember philosophy class when I was in school and we were taught to analyze arguments present arguments to listen to an argument and feel when it goes right or wrong Uh, if we kill that philosophy class which we've done because we were afraid of introducing religion into the thing we've run the place where we are now where uh, what you said is that we no matter who the artist is we have we don't have the ability to listen and analyze what the artist is saying
0: i think we have the ability and god knows there's reams of analysis of everything every artist says you know every every (laughs) Beyonce album that comes out has has political meaning as well as entertainment value and so forth, and um, uh, there's reams of stuff written about what it all what it all means. the um, The question is how how much are we willing to go uh, beyond the the um, interpretations, the issues, the resonances that just pop us pop up for us immediately and dig deeper. And that's what feels missing from a lot of the general public discourse now to go beyond the obvious questions and and ask the other ones. I don't really feel, you know, at my age, I'm kind of worried sometimes about, um, Falling into that thing because I hear myself say things I heard my parents say when I was younger, which, you know, basically like kids today, look at the stuff they're listening to or look at the stuff that they're doing or why can't people be smarter? Or You know, why don't people do things the way I used to do them? I don't I don't want to be that person. <laughs> right, <laughs> I, right. We're I'd all
2: there. Like,
0: yeah, I'd like I'd like to stay uh, awake as, as long as I possibly can and not fall into, you know, navigating in the rearview mirror. Yeah. So I think we all have the capacity and what is it we can all do collectively to encourage people to use that?
2: Yeah, that's, that's really the major question right here. And I think, you know, uh, for all of us, be it artists or, or, or not, the answer is how do we really formulate a system where we can look at each other and really take a look and see what's going on as opposed to what we now have going on in this country? Because we all know it's not working. I mean, it's just not working. We can we can get into class politics and things of that nature. And of course, that I think that's a great part of it. For me, it's a big part of what's going on. But I think in general, we need to devise an educational system that allows people coming up to really use their mind, their creativity. I mean, you know this probably better than I do, but uh, there's been many studies done on uh, how much music influences math or how much math is influenced by music. Um, you know, just little things like that are art and cognitive thinking. I mean, all of these things, they're proven again. And yet we decide, well, we have not enough money. Let's cut out art. It's the first thing we cut out. Or let's cut out gymnasium. Well, you know, again, I have some grandkids. If they don't run around for two hours a day, it's impossible to be around them. Once they do, they're delightful little angels. It's just a natural thing. And yet we've gone so far away from this. And and the question that I keep asking, I'm not asking the answer, if it could, it'd be great. Why? Why? You know, we've been making art for since the day one. Since so the first cave person, you know, drew a picture of a deer with an arrow pointing at it and said, go down here and hunt the deer. Uh, you know, so I don't know. I don't understand. And I think that's why we keep searching and keep looking and keep discussing and keep our doors and our, our minds open to allow people to bring something new to the table, like the young folks now who are really doing it.
0: Yeah, let me say a couple of things, because uh, when you guys introduced me, you talked about my book, The Culture of Possibility, Art, Artists, and the Future. And by the way, let me throw my URL up there in case anyone's interested. It's myname.com, arlenegoldbard.com. Um, you can read more about the book and so forth there. So the whole first part is arguments from uh medical care, from economy, from different scientific uh, practices, from uh, different political and social issues of the value of art that's been undervalued in the way that we were talking about earlier in the show. And the whole second part is an essay about the culture of what I call corporation nation, which is, uh, and it's an extended essay that says that these people who, in whose interest it is to make us um, compliant, consumerist uh, and oblivious um, because it maximizes their profits. I've been really successful at infusing and converting our culture to, to the culture that they want in which these things that all of us are speaking about, beauty, meaning creativity, empathy, connection are devalued. And if we do them, it's kind of an extra, it's an add-on, it's fluff somewhere. I think that the corporate culture that dominates this country is a big answer to the questions that you were asking. Certainly the corporatization of public education, Yeah. the corporatization of incarceration, oh. the corporatization, the commercialization of absolutely everything, right? The taking of all social goods that we think of as, of water, you know the the commercialization of water. so we're seeing a process unfold in the last century and continuing into this century, in which the um, creation of profit for a, a privileged few that is now the most polarized in terms of wealth, uh, uh, distribution at any time in our history. Are making our culture over into their image.
2: Bill, we need to go. I know our time is really needs here. Let me just say this: I'll embarrass Arlene by saying how brilliant and great she was, and that that will serve maybe to get her with us again down the road in the future. Uh, let me just wrap up by saying the culture of possibility, Arlene Goldbard's book. You must read the book. I. I'm not just saying it because Arlene is here. It's a magnificent book. It will keep you thinking for months and months. So, Bill, take us away.
1: Thank you, Arlene. It's Thank been you. a pleasure to meet you. And I let me echo what Peter just said. It would be wonderful to have you again. You said you were working on a new book. Let's talk about some of those things as you get further down the road as three artists here talking to each other artists are important in the culture and anyone who thinks of becoming an artist should explore that a little bit because we need whatever we can so until then take care of each other and respect each other peace